0: I wonder how you would feel if you were at home some night, and uh, if you can think back to the days when you were a child at home, if you're uh, an adult now, and your father came home and announced to the family, just uh, out of the blue, without any real preparation for it, that he was leaving, and uh, wouldn't be returning for a time, and I'm sure your immediate reaction would be, well, why can't we go with you? And uh, then he would say, "Well, you can 't go well why can't we father? Well, you just can 't go i 'm going now and and uh, you can come later, but you can't come now, and not only that, I expect you to uh, betray me somewhere along the line Now that would be a hard thing to take, and it would be uh, be shattering, I would think emotionally, not only to have your your father leave with a feeling of destitution and uh, Isolation that that would leave you with, but with the further rebuke that you were going to do something to him, something harmful to him, someone that you love very much. Now, that's the setting of chapter 14. The Lord had told the disciples in the last part of uh, John 13, we're told uh, in verse 33, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he began to... Uh, He began to teach them, but uh, Peter didn't hear a thing that Jesus said. He interrupts him. In verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? That's the same sort of response that that we would make to a statement like that from the Lord. So in chapter 14, the Lord begins to set them at ease. He knows that they're troubled and anxious. And that's why he says in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, the your here, the pronoun that's translated your in our Bibles, refers to all the disciples. He's been speaking specifically to Peter, but now he enlarges the circle to encompass all the disciples because he knows that they're just as troubled as Peter is. Peter is is the spokesman for the group, but they're just as anxious. And he says to them, stop being troubled. And then he gives them the, the antidote for a troubled heart. Keep on believing in God. Keep on believing in me. Now, that passage tells us a couple of things about anxiety. One is that we really can stop being anxious because this is a command. Jesus says, Stop being anxious. Uh, now, the Lord never commands anything that uh, we can't comply with, He never insists on obedience to some command that, that is impossible to obey. When the Lord says, stop being trouble, then he knew we could stop being trouble. And he tells us how we can stop being anxious. It's by believing in him. Now, I'm convinced that we need to learn to preach to ourselves. When we get anxious, it's possible for us to deliver a little lecture to ourselves that will deliver us from anxiety. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever preached to your soul? Uh, David did that in Psalm 42. Or, pardon me, not David, but some psalm, some psalmist, someone who wrote this psalm. Uh, the background of it seems to be the period of the exile. And whoever wrote it was way off in the northern part of, of the land of Palestine, away from the temple. And he longed to go down to the temple and worship, but he couldn't go any longer. And his heart cried out for that experience. He was anxious and turmoil and upset. And so he preaches to himself. He says, so why are you anxious? Hope in God, for he is yet our salvation in our and in the, the health of our countenance. You can do that. Have you ever tried it? You can remind yourself of what you know is true about God. Now, that's what Jesus is saying. If you're troubled, believe me. Now, not you know, this is not a general uh, command to believe in the Lord. There are some specific things that we can believe, and he's going to go on uh, to tell us what these things are, because there there are specific things that the disciples need to believe that would deliver them from trouble. But you see, that is the way we handle a troubled heart, by calling to mind what God has said, and then believing it, putting our faith in it, trusting it. Now, let's look at some of the the things that the disciples are told to believe. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, what in those verses does Jesus tell us to believe? What do you see there? He says, you do believe in God. Now go on believing in me and specifically believe these things and what can we believe that he tells us? What's the first thing? Huh? cat, got your tongue? Are you out there? Yoo-hoo. Pardon me? Okay, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Is that all he says? He's coming again. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. All right, now let's talk about those promises. Those are things to believe. Have you ever been afraid of death? Have you ever been anxious about your future? Well, that's something for you to believe. Have you ever been uncertain and uneasy about uh, what's going to happen the next day or the day after that and whether God is really able to take care of you? Well, here are some things to believe. First of all, he tells them that in the Father's house, there are many places to dwell. And he says, if it weren't so, I would have told you. Jesus never accommodated himself to people. He always told the truth. He never shaded the truth at all. He told them precisely what was true. So what he says is reliable. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come again and... And receive you to myself. Now, in these verses, you have the the fundamental revelation of heaven in the Bible. Uh, You know, uh, heaven is a difficult thing for even the Lord to explain to us, because we're dealing with another sphere of experience. How can you talk about eternal things to people who don't understand eternity? How can you talk about timeless things to people who are bound by time? We think in terms of time. That's the way we regulate our life. And now he's going to talk about an experience that has no time. There's no space. It's an entirely different kind of experience. How do you explain that to people? Now, what the Lord does through the writers of Scripture is use symbols. That's true of hell as well as heaven. When the New Testament writers talk about hell, they always talk about it symbolically because it's a... It's another dimension. It's, it's, it's impossible to explain to us in terms of our experience and our vocabulary. So he uses symbols. And when he talks about heaven, he uses symbols. Now, what symbol does he use? What is it? It's a house. What kind of a house? A father's house. Now, what picture does that bring to your mind? What do you think of when you think of your father's house? Can you go back in your memory to what life was like at home with Father, if you had that sort of Father? Well, there's warmth there. There's love there. There's fellowship. There's security. Do you remember as a kid uh, skinning your knee and running home and finding someone there who cared about you? Do you remember times when you were... Uh, Frustrated because people didn't treat you the right way outside the home. They weren't just. They didn't do what was right. And you could go home and you always knew there was someone there who understood you. Now, maybe that wasn't your experience, but it was mine. I had that sort of home. And what the Lord is trying to do, you see, is evoke that sort of memory. A house with lots of rooms. And he describes it here as uh, a house with many dwelling places. And unfortunately... The King James translation translates dwelling places as what? Do you remember? Mansions. And we just sang a song just a moment ago that talked about the mansions. There uh, go. Okay, the last line of 292 says, When I walk through the dark, lonesome valley, my Savior will walk with me there, and safely his great hand will lead me to the mansions he's going to prepare. And as a kid growing up, I used to think about that, I used to picture a mansion up on top of a hill, you know, with a long driveway and I'd pull up in my Rolls Royce and the servants would come out and and get me. And that's not the picture that, that the Lord is trying to give us at all. It's not mansions. It's not a cold, sterile, lonely, enormous house. It's a home full of people and warmth. Because the word that he uses here is a word that means little dwelling places, little rooms. Now, the reason we have mansions in the King James is because one of the earliest translations of the New Testament was the Latin Vulgate. It was done by a man named Jerome. And what he wanted to do is to get the scriptures right down in the language of the people. And that's why they call it the Latin Vulgate, because it was written in the common language, just the street language of the people, the Latin that was spoken in that day. Vulgar in in those days didn't mean rude, it meant common. So he wrote it that way. And when he came to this word... In the, in, in the Greek text, he translated it mansionis in Latin. And the word mansionis means a stage stop in Latin. Back in those days when the horsemen would come through and they'd be out in the weather and the rain and the snow and the cold. And they'd be looking for a place to stay and they'd pull up to a stop where they could get out and they could eat and they could... They could sleep, and there would be a big fire there, and there would be warmth, and there would be people there, and they'd be safe from from thieves and marauders and robbers on the road. And it was a very appropriate figure. He's trying to put it right in the language of the people. So he says, when you get to heaven, it's like getting to a stage stop. And unfortunately, the King James writers took that mansionus over literally into English and translated it mansions, and we think, big building. But that's not the point at all. It's a room. Decorated just for you. Prepared especially for you. That's what the Lord has gone to do for you. His going was through the cross. But he was going to prepare a place so that when you get there, there won't be anything strange. You'll be coming home. You see, C.S. Lewis says that the first thing we're going to say when we step into heaven is, of course. That's what I thought it was going to be. All the hopes and the aspirations and the desires and the hungers and the longings of our heart are fulfilled, you see, when we step into the Lord's presence. And what makes it, uh, what makes it even more wonderful is that the Lord is there. See, He's there. So it's like a big house with our brothers and sisters and we gather around the table and we eat and we feast and we talk and we yuck it up for hours on end, you see. That's heaven, okay? And that ought to take the trouble out of our hearts if we believe that. Now, verse 4. Jesus says, And you know the way where I am going. Now, he's just told him where he's going. Where's he going? Okay, he's going to prepare a place, but where is that? Home. The Father's home. Okay? And now he says, And you know the way where I'm going. Now, dear old Thomas, the cynic, says in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Now, that's a good question. If you don't know where you're going, you certainly don't know how to get there. Uh, you know, the first thing you have to determine when you set out on a trip is your destination. If you don't have a destination, you're, you're dead. You know, you'll never get there. <laughs> All right? <laughs> so uh, that's what, that's what, that was Thomas's problem. He somehow has missed the whole point. He didn't see that the Lord was describing the Father's house. That's where he was going. And Thomas says, we don't even know where you're going. How do you expect us to get there? Well, the Lord ceases on that question to uh, do some further teaching. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you have known me... You, have known my, you will know my Father. Also, from now on, you are knowing him and you have seen him. Now, it's a bit difficult to interpret what Jesus is saying uh, when he describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And there are a lot of different uh, attempts to interpret that statement. But uh, whatever it means, the Lord himself explains it for us. In what sense is he the way? Now, look at the context. Very often we try to answer this, uh, try to interpret Scripture by going someplace else to, uh, to derive an answer. But he actually tells us right here what he means by himself being the way. What does he mean? Yes, he's the way to the Father. But what does that mean? Yes, it's through him. But what do we have to do in order to go through him to the Father? What does he say here in the text? Pardon? Yes, but that's not the word that he uses. You have to know me. If you know me. Now, this is not a rebuke. He doesn't say if you had known uh, known me. He actually says, if you have known me, you know the Father. In other words, the way to the Father is to know the Son. Now, what does it mean to know the Son? Well, the particular word that Jesus uses here is best understood, I think, in terms of the way the Jews understood the word knowledge in their own language, in the Hebrew language, because this is a translation of the Hebrew word that they would have in the back of their mind, or the Aramaic word. The word for knowledge that Jews would, uh, would recall when Jesus used this expression means to point something out, or to distinguish something from something else, or to choose something, or to make something special. That's why, in the Old Testament, the sexual relationship, the relationship between husband and wife, is described in terms of knowledge. If you know your wife, then she is something very special. You know her in an experiential way, in a way that you don't know anyone else. She's very special. She's been chosen and set apart, given a special relationship. Now, that's what Jesus had in the back of his mind when he used this term. The point is, we have to choose Jesus. We have to make him special. He has to be very important to us. We have to love him. And if we make him special, then we have made the Father special. Now, there are a lot of people around that say, well, I know God and I worship God, but I really don't have any use for Jesus Christ. Well, they may say that before they hear the gospel fully and understand it, but they can't continue to say that because they can't know God apart from Jesus Christ. The only way you can know God is to know the Son. It's very clear. The Scripture makes that sort of statement over and over again. There's no other way to know the Father except through Jesus Christ, and we have to make Him special. Now, what else does Jesus say about uh, about the Father? He says, you know Him if you know Me. What else does He say? You've seen Him. You've seen him. Now, he introduces here a new thought, which Philip is going to pick up because he simply doesn't understand. Not only do you know the Father through knowing the Son, but you see the Father. Now, why would that be confusing to these Jews? Sure, no one had ever seen God. They had seen manifestations of God in the Old Testament, but they'd never really seen God. The a story about the little boy was drawing a picture and his teacher said, what are you drawing a picture of? He says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, nobody knows what God looks like. The kid says, they will when I get through. (laughs) 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 But it's true. You see, no one knows what God looks like. No one's ever seen God. He's a spirit. Can't see God. We'll never see God. And yet Jesus says, you've seen God if you've seen me. What did he mean? Well, that, that raised Philip's question. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. and That's enough. My goodness, what, that's a great response. Wouldn't that be enough for you to see God? Jesus says to him in verse 9, have I been so long with you, with all of you, and yet you, Philip, have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe me on account of the works themselves. Now, what is Jesus saying? What does he say about his relationship to the Father? Yes. What does that mean? In, in 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 practice, just in practical life, what does that mean? Yes, he was God. Hmm. I'm sorry, what? Yes. Yeah, in that in his own physical person he expressed the the actions of God. That's true. Notice what he says. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And back in verse 10 again. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding in me does his works. When Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, who was speaking? God. Jesus was speaking. And his mind was working. And his choice of words were his own. His vocabulary, the vocabulary that he used was his. But who was teaching? God was teaching. When he raised the dead or healed the sick, who was doing it? God was doing it. Jesus says, I'm not doing it. But now wait a minute. I thought Jesus was God. What does he mean? What kind of a person was Jesus? Was he a man? Was he God? Yes, he was God. Was he a a man? Yes, he was fully man. He was both, you see. But as a man, he never acted as God. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians 2. He laid aside the use of his deity. He never acted out of his deity. He always acted as a man, acts. And what he did, he did because he depended upon God. That was the source of his power. And he says, you have two ways to believe me. You can either believe me because I tell you. You see, verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. You can believe me on that level simply because I've told you. Or how else can you believe him? What other confirmation do you have? His works. The things that he did. Now men didn't always believe his words but there was no refuting his works because when they looked at him they saw that he acted as you would expect God to act. And it's not merely that he raised the sick raised the dead and healed the sick and did things on that level that no one else did it was also that in his character he always displayed the character of God. He acted as you would expect God to act. He was always composed. He was always gracious. He was never in a hurry. There was about him that quiet and restful spirit that characterizes the life of God. You know, God's not uptight. He's never anxious. He's never fearful or frantic. Revelation, uh book of Revelation, describes God sitting on a sea of glass. Have you ever seen a sea of glass? I remember once, Carolyn and I, early in the morning, driving around Lake Tahoe, and uh, it was like glass. There was not one ripple in the lake. You could see every tree reflected in the lake. It was just like glass. And I thought of that passage in Revelation. There, there are no waves in God's kingdom. Everything is quiet and peaceful and at rest. And when you looked at Jesus, that's what you saw about him. He was quiet and composed and at peace. See, that was the father at work in him. And we look at Jesus and we say, well, he did what he did because he's got an edge on us. He was God. Oh, yes, he was God, but he never acted as God. He always acted as man, and he tells us here, the things that I say and the things that I do are the things that the Father says and does. I was telling the teachers the other day that we think of Jesus as though he was Superman. He just has a a kind of a human suit on, but really inside he's God and he's invulnerable. But he's just, as a man, he laid aside all of his power as God, the independent use of that power, and and he was fully man, just as we are. Exposed to the same sort of pressures, the same problems, the same needs, the same desires. He did what he did, not because he was God, but because he was man dependent upon God. You see that? And that's why he can say in verses 12 and 13, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear that? Do I hear it? He's saying... That the same relationship that we sustain to the Father, that He sustained to the Father, we can have to the Father. We can do the same things that He did. We can have the same sort of supernatural composure in the face of pressure. We can have an answer for people in need. We can have insight into their problems as Jesus did when He confronted the woman at the well. We can do what Jesus said and uh, did, and we can say what Jesus said. And far more than that, we can do greater works than he did. Because he's going to the Father. He made a way for us. As uh, Ian Thomas says, the life that he lived qualified him for the death that he died. And the death that he died qualifies us for the life that he lived. You understand that? It sounds like gobbledygook, but it's uh, it's quite profound. I was talking to someone this oh, two weeks ago, and we were talking about injustice and how hard it is to be unjustly treated. And I pointed out what Peter tells us about justice, that uh, the Lord himself was never treated justly. And that's the pattern for our life. And we can accept injustice graciously because uh, we can entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, that is to God, because that's what Jesus did. We can do it as Jesus did. And he said, well, that's what Jesus did. I can't do that. That's Jesus. You ever say that? Oh, sure, Jesus could do it. He was God. But the Lord tells the disciples here that they can do it. Whatever they're called upon to do, they can do it. They can do the same things that Jesus did. Now, what pressure are you facing tonight? What demand is on you that that calls forth supernatural strength? Maybe tomorrow morning you have something coming up that is really scary. You can act as Jesus would act in that situation. Or maybe you've been crushed this past week by some terrible disappointment. Someone has treated you unjustly and you've been hurting all week. You can respond to that hurt graciously and with love and courtesy because Jesus did it. There's nothing that Jesus did that we can't do if we're called upon to do it on the basis of, of this promise. Do you believe that? Well, that ought to set anybody's trouble heart at rest. All right, now, let me quit and uh, give you a chance to ask any questions. Do you have any response you'd like to make or any anything you don't understand or some further comment that you'd like to make? Yes, Yes, I think so, Jerry. All of their expectations were upset at this point because Jesus said he was going away. And they really didn't expect that. That's why I say it would be just as unexpected if if someone we love and respect, that we expect to be there forever, suddenly tells us I'm leaving. Yeah, again, our resurrection bodies are described symbolically. uh, But it's a neat symbol that's used. It's that of a white stallion. And when the Lord comes back with his saints, they're mounted on white, white stallions. And, uh, that's a, that's quite a picture of the kind of body that God's gonna give us.